this morning we're going to pick right up where Les uh, deposited us last week. He went through Romans chapter 3, and he gave the assignment of Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, and the title of the sermon of Who is in God's Family. And I just want to say thanks to Murray for the song he led before communion. I call it the Disney song. I never can remember the name of it, but I like the tune. Um, but that, that song has the lyrics in there that we are now all family. And that's going to be an overarching theme to what we're looking at this morning in Scripture. Also, thanks to Mark for his communion thoughts, which were excellent. Um, I will try not to turn around the entire time. That's why I have this up here, because the back screen is out. But we're looking at Romans 4, 1 through 25, and asking the question, who's in God's family? Well, to do that, uh, often what Paul does is whenever he starts with Scripture, he's already answering something that he said previously. So it's a little awkward to start with Romans 4, 1, without looking at the last four verses of Romans 3. So let's look at that together. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Now look at what's here in yellow. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So, those of us who've been around the church all of our lives, we've heard this conversation a lot, right? We've heard the circumcision conversation. We've talked about what that was like in the worldview at the time. But we're going we're gonna to look at this a little bit differently this morning uh, and unpack some of this. Now we go to Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh, hang on to that one, has discovered regarding this matter? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this comes from Genesis 15, 6, but Paul inserts it right in the middle if you're following along in chapter, chapter 4 of Romans. But it's a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6. So our first question this morning is, did Abraham have the law? This whole conversation is about, can Abraham boast in the fact that he deserves something because he, how he's kept the rules. But here's the clincher, he, he didn't have them. The answer is no, he didn't have the law. Now he knew, he knew that there were things that you shouldn't do. Someone shouldn't kill somebody. Uh, we know that from Cain and Abel's story, right? And clearly there was no law then. But as far as having some set of stipulations, some set of rules that Abraham could have followed and said, see, I've kept all this, he couldn't do that. So obviously he can't boast and obviously his character has been formed by something different than just, just rules. So then Paul goes on. Now, to the one who works, and again, this is a little different for us. We're not talking about to the person who makes a living for themselves. We're talking about to people who think that they're working towards righteousness or justification. Now, to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. In other words, okay, if you can keep all the rules and you can follow all of the commandments, and you can live exactly the way a true human has been created by God to live, then you wouldn't need grace. But we know that that is not possible for any of us other than the one that we will speak of here in a minute. But to the one who does not work, in other words, does not work for righteousness and justification, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
So, even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, paraphrasing Psalm 32, 1 through 2, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will, will never count sin. Whew. Well, that sounds like a free pass, right? Which is how some in the New Testament interpreted it, and Paul had to say, no, no, that doesn't mean we just keep on doing more wrong just because we have grace. What, what this is actually saying, I think, is that before you had all the rules to know exactly how bad you were, God still allows you to have faith in him and credits it as righteousness. And we know that Paul later tells us that the law comes along. It came along to tutor people. It came along in order to show them all of their deficiencies because otherwise they wouldn't know. So the law constantly changed whenever there were new sins and whenever there was new things being done, right? So you would not even necessarily realize you were sinning. So David says, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds that he may or may not, they may or may not even be aware of, are forgiven. That's, that's how it's credited to Abraham. That's how we will look at it here in a minute, credited to us. So we continue, verses 9 through 10. Is this blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? Now right, right there, just like the verse that we looked at towards the end of chapter 3, we're already seeing two groups of people, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised. We don't really know what to do with some of that language sometimes now in 2021. So let's think about it this way. The group of people who are the chosen people of God and all of the rest, right? The circumcised was the sign that you're chosen of God. The uncircumcised was basically the sign that you weren't. So is this blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time? No, he was not. No, he was not circumcised, but uncircumcised. Okay, so here's a question. Was Abraham a Jew or a Gentile? Because we've just said the circumcision and the uncircumcision are the two groups, right? And now we know where we are sitting and what we know from the Bible. We know that the two groups can also synonymously be known as Jew and Gentile. So the scripture we just read said he wasn't circumcised. So was he a Jew or a Gentile? We're going to come back to this question in a second. We're going to look at why Paul, why Paul is doing this. Again, the stress on the two groups. So what causes Paul to unpack the story of Abraham then? Now, this is something fascinating to me. We know from the New Testament that before Saul becomes Paul, he says he's the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's learned under the feet of Gamaliel. He has all of this great knowledge. He's been to the rabbinic schools, which, by the way, I didn't even know were really a thing until I did some in-depth study, and there were actually schools of theology, schools of teaching for, for the Jews, for the rabbinic people to come through. And one of the things that they had to do, which I'm sure most of us in here have heard this, is they had to memorize the whole Torah, the whole first five books of the Old Testament. So whenever they would hear things that would come through Jesus or come through what we call the New Testament, it would turn on light bulbs and dots would start being connected because they've memorized all this stuff. They know exactly what it says. And then somebody comes along and has some sort of connection to that in their preaching, teaching about Christ. So Paul understands the Hebrew Bible so well 
that he's using that knowledge, and he knows most of his audience when he's speaking to Jewish people, which is the case here. He's speaking to the circumcised. They're the ones that are kind of uppity about, wait a second, this is all for us. So he's speaking to his people, who are the chosen people of God, with the understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures that not only he has, but also they have. And so what does he do? Well, I think he alludes to Genesis 10 and 11. All right, now here's not, a, here's not a place we spend a whole lot of time in, but this is fascinating to me. Genesis 10 has the table of nations. If it's on a Bible test at any time, the number's 70. Just remember that. 70 nations, okay, are in the table of nations. Guess which nation is not listed? Israel. Israel's not listed because we haven't gotten to Abraham yet in Genesis 12, okay? So you've got all these nations listed, and so... In a way, you don't really have two groups yet. You can't. You've just got one group. You've got humanity, right? You've got different families. That's kind of what nation in, in, the, in the Hebrew actually means. It's like family unit. So you've got different families, family trees, people related to different people. You've got people in different parts of the geography. But you don't have a, a people pulled out that are established as the people of God. You just have... You just have people. You just have the humans. And if we think about that, we, we can say, well, I, you know, I don't know that I thought about it that way. Well, if we think about the stories leading up to Genesis 11, it makes perfect sense, right? Because God saw that all of humanity had gone astray and there was not a, a, a good thought in any of them except for Noah and his family, right? So Noah and his family were chosen, but Noah and his family don't get don't get the job done either, right? And so now we're at a different place where basically history is starting to repeat itself, and we go right into the story of the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, if I can paraphrase it, if you'll allow me to do that, God says something like, oh my, they're all, they're all able to communicate with each other, and they're all going to turn against me again, just like they did when I, had to, when I had to flood everything. And I've already promised I won't flood everything. So... If, if, human, if humans, if humanity are allowed to be a cohesive unit, they're going to turn against me and nothing will stop them, is what he says. When they're building this tower, this ziggurat that they're, that they're building up to the skies, he says, you know, they, they just might be successful. So what does he do? He confuses their language and splits all of the nations out into their own territories. And then we get to Genesis 12 and he calls... He calls Abram, right? So in Genesis 11, before we leave that, this is why its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world, and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. United humanity would have opposed God. God needed an example people that he could pull out to show all of humanity what it looks like to be in covenant with God and to be loyal to him, and so he goes to Abram. So he comes to Abram and he calls him and it says, God said that through Abram, all the other families or nations of the earth would be blessed. That's basically Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So you've, you've gone from a single group to the start of two groups, right? And this, this new group is a group that's going to bless all the other groups. So Genesis 12, 3 is the statement that we started with that Paul, you know, Paul also alludes to. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who, and your translation may say, curses you, I will curse. That's what a lot of English translations say. 
but actually closer to the original Hebrew language, it would be something like, the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. And the word curse there in Hebrew is a different word than normal. It's actually got more of an understanding of utterly destroy. So that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. Now what, what could possibly be going on with the one who blesses you, I will bless, but the one who treats you lightly, I must utterly destroy. Well, um, we have to go back to Genesis, which we'll do here in a second, but hang on to that for a second, all right? Let's look at what also said. If, if this utter destruction's coming for those who don't bless God's chosen people, let's look at the other side of it, which is what is coming for the people of God. Well, Isaiah 65, 17 says, which maybe, maybe I didn't pay attention to this when I was younger uh, enough. For look, I am ready to create new heavens and a new earth. The former ones will not be remembered. No one will think about them anymore. So we already have in the Old Testament a foreshadowing that things are going to be put right and that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth and the former things are not going to be remembered. So if we, if we look at what we've said so far, the Gentiles are the nations. They're group number two. They're the bigger group, right? They're the 70 nations from Genesis 10 that have been dis, dis, dispersed and they're moved to their own areas and their own, their own geographic boundaries. And then the Jews are the nation of Israel. So coming back to the curse thing in a second, was Abraham a Jew or a Gentile? We asked that question about six minutes ago. Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, the short answer is that Abram was a Gentile, because there was only one group, right? Who was chosen by God to be the ancestor father of the Jewish people of God. So from the one, from the large group of everybody, someone is selected by God, who's Abram, and he is now the father of the example group that's going to be used in order for the whole world to be blessed. That's basically what the text is telling us. And then Paul goes on in Romans, and he received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abram says, I believe in God, I'm loyal to God, to Yahweh, to the Father, and God says, I will go ahead and perform the distinction that you are mine, and then that starts the whole distinction of that, that people group, right, of, of Israel. So that he would become the father of all those, watch this, who believe but have never been circumcised, that they too could have righteousness credited to them. So it keeps telling us over and over again what the purpose is. And it's always including people from the other group. But here's Paul speaking to his people, to the circumcised, to the Jews, and they're having issues with what about these uncircumcised people, even though the Hebrew Bible clearly shows that was always the plan. So go into verse, four, uh, sorry, verse 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised. Okay, so that's why he's a Gentile and a Jew, right? He's the father of the uncircumcised. He's also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham possessed when he was still uncircumcised. Whew! It'll make your mind bend, won't it? I mean, it's like, wait a second. I gotta, I gotta put something down here to keep up with what's going on. Who is, who's not, who's in, who's out, who's circumcised, who's not, who has, 
who has uh, righteousness credited to them, who doesn't. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world, which is why I put in the Isaiah 65, 17 text, there's this new heavens, new earth coming. These are the people who are going to inherit it. They will inherit the world was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, that's good news. That's more than good news. That's excellent news. That means we don't have to get everything right, and this somehow is available to everybody because we've gone back and forth about Abraham being the father of the circumcised, but also being the father of the uncircumcised, also having the circumcised be included in the promise, but also having the uncircumcised included in the promise, right? But how do we bring all this together? Well, one question we can ask is faith in what or in whom? Well, in the Old Testament, it's obviously faith in Yahweh. It's faith in who we call the Father. It's faith in God, right? But we're in Romans chapter 4, so this is Paul talking to people who now have heard of Jesus. So faith is actually, our faith is actually in Christ, who's also God, fully God, and his faithfulness, Christ's, to the Father, which Les said last week or the week before. And, and, and yes, what, what value would there be in having faith in somebody if they weren't faithful? Jesus has done what all the other invitations of God's people uh, failed to do. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, you know, the, David, the list goes on, Israel, the, the nation. So Jesus comes along and he fulfills it. So this curse thing I've had you hold on to, we're, we're getting back to it, don't worry. So here's a question Les asked last week, and I asked his permission. I said, is it okay if I tap into something you said last week, not because I'm correcting you or, or giving the answer, but just looking at it a different way? And he goes, sure, sure. I said, okay. So Les last week asked this question, why did Jesus have to die? Remember him talking about how nerve-wracking that was on an exam in, in somewhere at Harding or Fried Hardeman or wherever he was, and having to write this long paper and then the teacher gave him you know, not the grade he wanted and said, well, I disagree or it wasn't the right answer or whatever. Well, I can tell you that many of us in this room have been there, and we have questions like this, and they're very, very complex, and they're very plexing, and I think it's a whole lot simpler based on what study led me to to prepare for this morning. If we go back to Genesis 3, and we couple Genesis 3 with Philippians 2, there's a massive light bulb that comes on. Genesis 3, if you'll remember, are where the curses are laid out by God to the participants in the disobedience, right? Who gets cursed first? The serpent, because the serpent caused it, right? Who gets cursed second? Creation. Who gets cursed third? Adam and Eve. All right, so we've, we're under a curse. This makes the Hebrew translation earlier of the blessing and changing the word from curse a little bit more clear. We're under a curse already. Jesus, in Philippians 2, is fully God, tells us he's born fully God, and yet he empties himself of the equality with God, and however that happens that we can't articulate completely this morning. But the point is, what is he, buried on, what, what, what is he born underneath? He's born underneath the same curse that we're under. If he's not, he doesn't do any victory, right? He doesn't do anything for us if he's not actually also underneath that. So he's under the same curse as Genesis 3, just like Abram was, just like David was, just like the nation of Israel was, and he's given the same mission that they were all given. So Jesus was under the curse all humans were under. So let's look at Les's question. Is it not fair to say then, 
if he's born of a human, that he has put himself into the humanity of a life, of a human life, right? This is not the opportunity for him to just say, according to Philippians 2, I'll just hit the eject button. This isn't going well. I'll just go on back to heaven. He actually put himself into a human life from birth to death, right? Now, set Enoch and Elijah aside for a second. Has anybody been born that didn't die? No, because Genesis 3 says that's the curse, right? And through Adam comes death, and therefore every human being dies. So why did Jesus have to die? Because he was human. Now, did he have to die the way he did? No. Did he have to be obedient to that death? No, but he did, and no one else has done it. But he was always going to die because he's a human. So not necessarily the answer the teachers would want, but I think it's the answer that Scripture gives us. And as we unpack this further, I think it'll become a little clearer. Jesus fulfills everything for everyone who's in Christ. Now, if we think about what that Scripture said, and, and we, we use the more literal language of the original Hebrew, it makes a little bit more sense. If they bless you, I will bless them. Um, if they don't, if they take you as irrelevant or they don't look at your example and come to me or they don't, they don't bless the nations or the nations are not able to turn to me, then guess what? They're still under the curse and so f therefore it leads to death, right? That makes a whole lot more sense than God up there giving new curses because he doesn't need to because we're already under the curse. We're under the curse that every human being is under until Jesus comes and frees us from that. So God is calling everyone from all the nations and the entire world back to Yahweh or the Father, whichever word you want to use there, through Christ, the true and only creator of all things. Several different New Testament scriptures there wrapped up into one verse. Now here's where it gets really interesting. If you don't, if you don't take anything else away from the Bible part this morning before we get to the application part in the last couple of minutes, I hope you'll hear this. Why in the world did I spend the time on the Tower of Babel and the table of nations and the scattering because when we read Acts 2 I don't think we notice what's actually going on Jesus says to the apostles at the end of the gospels I've got to go away so that something greater can come and then Acts 2 we all know if, if, if we're Bible students we all know this is when the Holy Spirit comes on, upon people right the rushing wind but look at what it actually says now there were devout Jews ah, circumcised chosen people of God right from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem. Hmm. There's a representative of every one of those nations that's out there, that's the Gentiles, that's the world, right? These Jews are residing in those nations. When the sound occurred, the rushing wind sound, the Holy Spirit coming upon them, a crowd gathered and was in confusion because each one heard them speaking in their own language. This is the reverse of the curse. This is the reverse of God scattering everybody out and saying, I've got to pull somebody as an example so that I can save everybody who will believe in me. It's happened. The Holy Spirit comes, and the 70 nations are represented, the ones who were scattered, the ones who weren't Israel, by somebody who's a believer from those nations, and they all hear in their own language. So it's exactly the undoing of what Babel did. And the Holy Spirit now indwelling humans, God is now going into people and becoming, uh, becoming involved in humanity in a way that hasn't happened before, right? That's what, that's what 
That's what we are. And then we get to the famous question that they say. They hear all this, and like I'm telling you, they've got all this in their head. They hear all this, and they go, well, then what, what must we do? Now, they're upset that they just have been told they killed the Messiah. Don't get me wrong. Yes. And they also have just heard, oh, this is a reversal of the curse. What must we do to join the group that's going to have eternal life, that's not going to go to destruction. And we go straight to Acts 2.37 and then the answer, Acts 2.38, that went over last week. So there's our first opportunity this morning for an invitation. How do we join the family of Christ, the resurrected? If we're not in it, why are we not saying, what must we do? Because joining the family of Christ, joining the family tree, the genealogy that leads to eternal life rather than the Adam family tree that leads to death, it's as simple as coming and being buried with Christ, resurrecting with him into that life, into that family, into that saved family tree. It's the pledge of allegiance in baptism. God's family is always allegiant to God in all situations, in all we say, and all that we do. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's what no one other than him had ever been able to accomplish. They always gave up at some point, turned to another God, uh, disclaimed God, disobeyed, whatever, whatever scenario you want to play and read through Scripture until Jesus perfected all of it. So, circumcision and the groups were before Jesus. See, Jesus comes, and it doesn't really matter if you're circumcised or not. It doesn't really matter which nation you're from. It doesn't really matter if you're a Gentile or if you're a Jew. Jesus is all about uniting everybody and all things in him and handing everything over to the Father. That's what Scripture tells us. So there's going to be this group. There's going to be this, this family, this nation, this kingdom that's going to be handed to the Father that's going to include everyone who has heard and has come to Christ. So... Nothing matters but being in Christ. Now, if we believe that, and all in Christ are in God's family, which there's the answer to the sermon question, who's in God's family, anybody who's in Christ is in God's family, then the first invitation this morning is, if you're not, then, then let's fix it. You need, you need to come down here and get in the family, because there's no other way to not go to death than to join what Christ has done, because we can't do it. So the takeaways, all right? Maybe somebody's sitting there saying, like I have many times in my life, hey, okay, what if I fail? What if we sin? Well, we'll do both. And God knows it. And he's known it all along. That's why he's always built something all along the way, every step, to offer us more grace when the law exposed more sin. But the call to being his son eradicates all of that. It doesn't make us perfect. doesn't keep us from sinning but it puts us in the family. Think about it this way. God loved us before we were in God's family. We're told that. He loved us while we were still yet sinners, when we didn't even believe in him. Why would he love us less or stop loving us now that we're in his family? That doesn't make any sense, right? Welcome to my family. I loved you so much that I sent my son to die so that you could be in it. I'm upset with you. I'm thinking about kicking you out. No. I mean, just... When, when we sin and we fail, God forgives us. He wants us to be believing that, and he wants us to get back to imaging Jesus. All right? So the second takeaway then this morning is a godly life allows us to be a consistent witness to the gospel. If people look at our lives and do not see any distinction from the unbelieving world, 
and do not see a life lived in service of others, they will not find the gospel believable, or at best, they will be confused. Right? Otherwise, it's just a personal salvation ticket. Further, they will see our lives as a contradiction of the message of Jesus. In other words, people will expect us to live like Jesus, the person we say loves them. This is not unreasonable. So, the second invitation is if we're all in Christ, we're all in God's family, how awkward would it be this Thanksgiving if you're sitting around the table at, at, at the meal and the whole family's there and you've got your cousin Eddie and you've got your cousin Joe and you've got your Aunt Pat and whoever else it is that, you know, some of you are smiling, you know what I did there. You, you see these people, right? And you say, you know what? You're out. We're going we're gonna to disfellowship you. We're going to kick you out of the family. Um, we've decided we don't like you very much. We're not even sure you're really qualified to be in our family, so uh, there's the door. Now, there may be some people you want to do that to, but it doesn't work like that, right? Because they're family. And you hear your spouse say, they're family. And you say, oh, yeah, 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 they're family. I remember. I have to love these people. I have to like them, right? Well, is that not what we're doing when we come in here and we're supposed to be coming in here and equipping ourselves to go out to the world so that they will be convinced that this is true and that Jesus does love them and he wants them to join the family. And if we get in here and we start squabbling and we start fighting and we start making little groups that say, well, this church is going to go this way because this is the way I want it to go. I don't like that person. I don't like that preacher. I don't like that class. I don't like the coffee flavor. I don't like this. I don't like that. I'm going to start shopping churches. You know what's happening? The world's just looking at us going, yeah, you, you know, I don't want to be in that family. That doesn't sound like anything that's inviting at all. As a matter of fact, that sounds hypocritical. So the invitation to all of us who are in the family is let's stay in it. Let's love each other like we're supposed to because by our love, the world will know that Jesus is real, right? So again, first invitation. If you're not in the family, let's get you in the family. If you're in the family, let's actually be one. Let's treat each other with love. Let's make the world take notice that even when we disagree with each other, even when people say some things that some of us don't like, we're still family. And we need to start doing that. So maybe in the next 15 minutes between now and class, get with some people that you think are wrong. Get with some people that you think you would just assume they not be here and tell them you love them.